This is Daniel Fagell, and you're listening to the AI and Business Podcast. In this episode, we're focusing on AI adoption trends and what successful AI adopters are doing that others aren't. Our guest this week is Marshall Choi of Samba Nova. Some of you who are longtime listeners will know Marshall from years ago. We've been working with Kasako Research, the largest AI hardware event in the world for some four plus years. Marshall was with us, I think, in our first or second year working with Kasako as a guest. Since then, we've developed quite a relationship with Samba Nova. They are currently the sponsor of our AI is Here series, where we've talked about current AI impact across industries, and we've straddled the Atlantic between the United States and Europe. In today's episode, we speak with Marshall specifically about what he's seeing enterprises doing who are adopting AI well from a team perspective, from a technology perspective, from a decision-making perspective, really from an executive and C-suite standpoint. We also talk about some of the use cases that Marshall is seeing make their way into the world. And in addition to that, we speak at the end of this episode about some of the differences between the AI ecosystems in the U.S. and in Europe and what potentially European enterprise leaders need to think about. This is a bit of an extension into our AI is here series where we talk about, again, in this case, trends from both sides of the Atlantic, but we do touch on Europe. Many of you who've been listening in on our Wednesday episodes from our AI is here series with Samba Nova have heard a great deal of excellent expertise from AI practitioners and leaders in Europe. And Marshall's key points at the end of this episode, I think, are worth jotting down. This episode is brought to you by Samba Nova. To learn more about Samba Nova's AI is Here initiative and to learn more about how you might reach Emerge's global audience, stay tuned to the end of this episode. Without further ado, back again with us is Mr. Marshall Choi with Samba Nova here on the AI and Business Podcast. So, Marshall, welcome back to the program. Hey, Dan. Thanks so much for having me. Great to be back. Yep. Great to be able to communicate with you again. I've been watching you guys do a lot over the last 12 months here, and we're talking about some interesting topics. Today, we're going to tie in some of the commonalities of what you're seeing among successful adopters as you guys are working with more and more enterprises in the U.S. and abroad. Trends are emerging here. We've talked a little bit about them off mic. Talk a little bit about what you're seeing successful adopters do from a trend perspective. What, what is picking up in terms of enterprise adoption? Yeah, it's super interesting. I mean, you know, over the last 12 months, one thing's become really clear to us as we've been engaging and deploying with customers in the enterprise. And that's, you know, it's that AI is actually here, right? We've had a number of AI winters over the decades. And, uh, you know, what we're seeing is that people have, you know, reached a level of maturity and readiness to the point that we're seeing, you know, real deployments happening both at the departmental and company-wide levels of many kind of forward-facing organizations. You know, just a few years ago, there was, you know, a, a slightly different story, right? There were some, oh, yeah. of the, you know, the big hyperscalers were, you know, doing a lot of activity because they had they're the ones with the budgets and the armies of PhDs who could kind of, you know. Let's face it, they're leading the segment in a lot of cases. They What they do moves markets and, it. and it makes the headlines, right? But it's certainly shifting from those days where it was just polar opposite extremes of hyperscalers and then a bunch of people just talking and dreaming about stuff to where, you know, we're seeing, you know, meaningful deployments that are beyond the pilot stage and, and getting into production now. 
Absolutely. So certainly there's a trend around how far along we are for general maturity across many different industries here. And I imagine some of that also trickles down to where they're starting to use this tech. I mean, a lot of vendors are growing in different directions, responding to the needs of the folks that are actually starting to scale with this technology and take data seriously. What are some of those trends in, I guess, the capability side of things? Yeah, we've certainly moved beyond the days of detecting the difference of, of cats versus dogs on the internet. Yep. <laughs> Thank God. Thank God. Yeah. yeah. I mean, joking aside, I mean, I think, you know, one, one of the thing, you know, the things that we're seeing is, is the big transitional shift here is, you know, just a move away from these, these toys and these experiments to more of more foundational type deployments. Right. And not to say this is, prevalent across the board, but for those that are kind of really innovating and leading the charge, um, there is a recognition that, you know, this this whole notion of, you know, a foundational AI backbone, so to speak, is what's going to be needed for, you know, possibly the next five to 10 years as people kind of grow in their AI maturity, you know, and, and, you know, we're, we're seeing evidence of this all over the place where, Folks who kind of jumped ahead and, and didn't have this real strategic mindset yet have ended up in this conundrum of just too many models to own and, and maintain and, and, and support over time. And so they're actually having to do it over and do it right again and, and you know, grow the foundational model approach. Yeah, well, we can get a little bit into models and maybe NLP Specifically, I know there's a lot of large language we're probably going to touch on here today, but we talked about, I mean, for many, many years at Emerge, the, the idea of kind of these popcorn projects, as we would call them, you know, little tiny spin up things here, spin up things there. There really is no coherent tie to any core capability we're building on. There's really no coherent tie to one year, three years, five years from now. How is this right. going to help us reach any kind of strategic goal? It was really just spinning up experiments. And at some point, it was just purely POCs. At some point, maybe it went a little bit farther than POCs, but it still didn't tie to anything coherent. It sounds like you guys are also seeing people having to gather up these pieces and now ask the question, how does this all fit together? Yeah, you're spot on, Dan. I mean, what you just referred to is, is what I've thought of as pilot purgatory, right? It's yeah. you know, discovery, discovery through experimentation and, and, the, and a hope and a prayer that pilots and test beds will lead to the discovery of a use case. Unfortunately, that seldom happens, right? And and so what we're seeing the kind of transition now is really, you know, pilots to production, which are, you know, well underway and being accompanied by, you know, actual AI business value. And, you know, it starts with, you know, maturity and in, in, in terms of architecture and data and really having more of a coherent and cohesive strategy across the organization, you know, which starts with C-level alignment, you know, down the line of business and the data science teams. And then you can have much more of a, a well thought out, you know, mindset around what do you actually want to accomplish and how are you going to go about it? And then you can, you know, avoid these endless circles of, of discovery through experimentation. Yeah. Well, it's so much easier said than done, as you well know, and you guys have in an experience behind it. You know, to get that level of what we call kind of executive AI fluency at the top, what a golden, beautiful dream that is. You know, have folks that understand where AI fits into their overall strategy who 
you know, understand what AI can realistically and not realistically do. Some firms have it a little bit more than others. A lot of the time, the vendors are, are the ones that are having to bring a lot of this education. But it is safe to say that there's way more of it than there was two, three years ago, where hardly anybody in the C-suite really had an idea. So you guys are seeing that fluency lift over time as well. I definitely want to get into that fluency. And that's going to be kind of around what the adopters are doing better than the non-adopters from a a deployment and sort of adoption process. But on this idea of of building a foundation, part of this is around NLP. You know, we look at some industries like FinServe, where such a huge preponderance of the technologies and early deployments of AI involve NLP. Talk about, I guess, where you're seeing large language models make their way in. I think some people know about these as kind of cool tech news, you know, oh, how many features got trained into this crazy big model, but really not about where it fits into the enterprise. Where are you seeing that? Yeah, I mean, we're seeing it crop up uh, across a pretty fairly broad range of industries. And, And the commonality among those industries is that they are either speech or text or document heavy. Effectively, they're language heavy industries, right? And, you know, the one that, you know, has jumped out in front of all the others has been banking and financial services. Yeah. These folks are, are looking at this as a way to innovate forward the applications and the use cases across the organization, whether that be the front end call center or the back end risk and compliance type workloads and everything in between. And what we're seeing the shift in thinking again, has been one towards foundational models to lay the backbone for the enterprise. We talked to customers who they've built, you know, thousands of smaller language models, each one specifically tuned to a specific task. And that's great done in isolation, but I I guarantee you nobody sat down three years ago and devised a strategy to end up with, you know, thousands of replicant models for different use cases and different tasks. You know, nobody planned to have that that cost and that that nightmare of, of maintenance and ongoing operation. And so, you know, that's one area that we see as a significant shift as a move away from that towards single large language models as as the you know the foundational model for the workflows of today and those in the future. And it really just points to a much more strategic mindset that we're starting to see people form around their AI deployments. Big time. Yeah. I mean, you know. Popcorn project time or pilot purgatory, who cared if it ever integrated into anything else? Who cared if it just lived in its own little spun up AWS thingamabob for however long? But now it's sort of, okay, if these are these are going to be part of our future, if we're going to try to get more and more out of these, is there a way to make it one coherent capability that we're building versus a bunch of band-aids and, and little dark corners of the business? Yeah. And, and and I think, you know, this goes back to what you mentioned. I, I think the term you used was executive fluency. Yeah. AI, right. And, and, you know, when it was the, you know, every individual data scientist and, and app owner devising their own individual strategy, you know, you ended up with, you know, these popcorn projects and these, these pilots. And, you know, now with, you know, executive level buy-in and driving of these projects, you know, let's take, you know, take the example of risk and compliance, right? Instead of having a siloed view of risk and compliance for every different location or every different, you know, area of the business, the chief risk officer is now involved. And what does the CRO want? The CRO, well, she wants to have an enterprise-wide view of all the risk and compliance projects as one. 
you know, it's just too hard to chase down and reconcile all these siloed views, which oftentimes are in contradiction of one another if you don't do it right. Yep. So I, I do think that the part of this, you know, it'll be interesting to see over the course of the next three to five years, you know, where the confluence of many of these kinds of applications sort of coming together in a broader platform or, or a bigger general model that gets trained, you know, what, what parts get pulled in, what parts don't for practical purposes, mm-hmm. compliance purposes, whatever. But one thing I think it's an undeniable sign of is the fact that people are now thinking big picture. They're seeing this as a broader investment in capability and not just a bunch of isolated band-aids that they're trying to slap on different parts of the business. And I guess that takes us, you know, talking about this increase in fluency and this movement towards valuing the strategic and capability side of, of AI. We can talk a little bit about what the successful adopters are just doing better than those who aren't. I mean, we could say, well, they're they're willing to experiment and spend money and things like that. And I, okay, that makes sense. But you know, there's probably elements of team collaboration, maybe how they treat data or all sorts of different details from an executive team standpoint. You're meeting with government leaders, you're meeting with C-level folks at gigantic corporations. Where do you see the savvies separating themselves from the less savvies in a practical sense? Well, I think in a practical sense, you know, where it starts at is with a coordinated approach across the organization. You know, the AI flag cannot be flown by just one one woman or one man in the organization, right? It, it needs to be inclusive of multiple functional aspects of the organization. It's got to have, you know, CXO level ownership, you know, things like formal AI centers of excellence and, and, and governance committees, Along with all of the technical staff, of course, who are you know doing much of the difficult and and painstaking work to actually make this happen in, in real time, and so you know that's that's part a big part of what we see is just the, the fact that organizations, just as we saw with other big technology shifts, are not viewing AI as the bolt-on and it's somebody else's responsibility. It's becoming a corporate ride initiative so much so that it's showing up in annual report filings and being reflected upon in terms of the assignments of the employees from the executive levels all the way down. Got it. And so seeing the companies that are doing well have more of a high-level executive mandate, I'm dying to know and you know, certainly have our hunches, and we do a lot of interviews here, but your take on what has gotten them to that point? I mean, you know, for me, to this day, at least at the time of this recording, you know, a, a C-suite that sort of has a coherent picture of what AI can and can't do, and of where sort of longer term, maybe even five-year, maybe even longer, it can help really support them winning in the market and serving their their customers and, and, and their teams is rare. It's still rare. But but some are obviously far enough along. What are they doing to, to get on the same page there? Because there, there's a lot of growth for most firms to get to that level of, of competence. Yeah. I mean, for, for us, what we've seen is you know, we, we've taken on a lot of that burden of, you know, kind of helping to to consult and, and educate with our partners out there. You know, a lot of people have a, a, a coarse-grained view and opinion of, you know, what AI is and what it can do for them. But sometimes, you know, with, with less expertise and knowledge, that view can be a, a little bit overly, you know, overly optimistic or just, you know, off-center. And, so really helping to define, you know, what it is AI can and can't do for you and, 
you know, how we can help to actually drive business value is pretty interesting. The way people are kind of looking at business value and, and measuring ROI is another area that's really changing over the last few years in terms of what people are looking at and what they're measuring. Yeah, maybe we can get a little bit into that. I mean, we certainly have very, very strong opinions about this. But when you look at the, the again, more and less savvy folks from a how do we measure ROI vantage point, yeah, what, what leaps to mind in terms of separators there? Well, I think, you know, just to overly simplify it here, there's, there's two ways to think about this. You know, and a lot of people really are, are, are bound to that traditional mindset of, of how they think of measuring, you know, new technology adoption and, and new purchases, which is, you know, how much is this going to help me save, you know, in terms of time or, or, or money or, or staffing and resources? You know, it, it's a cost savings viewpoint. Yep. Um, to me, that seems fairly short term and fairly tactical. And oftentimes, if that is the equation you're going to use to measure the return on investment, it won't make a lot of sense, right? You've got to have a longer view of it, a more strategic view. And so where we're seeing people really doubling down and, and, and really kind of investing heavily with fortitude and, and conviction is where they're looking at this from a very different perspective, right? It's how is AI going to help to drive and power the next set of services and products that we deliver? How is this going to help us to improve our customer experience and, and customer attention? You know, measurements like that, that that are really tied to bottom line revenue generation seems to be the more strategic view that we're seeing in people who've kind of really matured in their mindset and their strategies and execution around AI. What's interesting is, you know, Samanova commissioned some research recently that showed that, you know, about, you know, 72% of people are focusing on cost savings versus 67% on revenue growth. That was last year. I'm pretty sure that we're going to see that level off and then continue to tilt towards revenue generation and away from the tactical cost savings as we go forward and people mature in their thinking. Yeah, a hundred, a hundred percent. I mean, I, I think that we see AI almost four years ago, even being synonymous with just automation or efficiencies, slightly more mature, maybe thinking about other kinds of risk. But yeah, moving forward, the folks that'll arguably see the largest returns and certainly that'll be able to keep up as, as entire industries start to transform in the decade ahead will be the folks that can open up new capabilities. Again, whether that's revenue, new products, et cetera. Takes a while to get there, though. Again, there's a certain amount of executive fluency to sort of make that level of a commitment and calculate it in some other way. In terms of painting a big enough vision to see where can AI connect the dots, the reason that, Marshall, I think it's easy to, to look at the efficiency play is because we don't need to understand anything new. We just need to understand right. the current costs of our current workflows and ask some simple questions about percentage reductions of X, Y, or Z, and then we're done. If we want to imagine a new way that our medical device or a new way that our our manufacturing plants or a new way that our whatever our product is can serve the customer or can provide additional feedback data to the company that can help us improve efficiencies in some other way, you know, in order to see capabilities erupt, we need a much bigger uh, sort of a, amount of fuel for our imagination. We need to we need to know the technology, be able to see what it's doing. What helps people see that bigger picture from your experience? 
Yeah, it's a it's a great question, and I and I, I think you're you're spot on, right? I mean, the, the cost and efficiency thing is is really easy to look at because it's it's just incremental, right? And when you're talking about new services and new products that you can provide to your end users, that you're talking about exponential change. You're talking about transformation, right? And so, you know, how do people, you know, how do people really shift to that? I mean, I think a lot of this just daring to be bold and think out of the box and just realize that AI is not going to drive, if done correctly, going to drive incremental change. It's going to drive exponential transformation. I mean, you know, Dan, we love our, our car analogies in this business, right? And, you know, this is the old saying that, you know, if, if Henry Ford had asked, you know, prospects what they wanted, they would have told him a faster horse. That's it. Right? They would not have said they want a, a car. And, and so it really is, you know, truly understanding that, you know, this is, you know, exponential transformation that AI is going to drive. And, you know, we look back to the, the, the you know, one of the more recent big transformational shifts, which was the internet, right? The internet didn't take off, off overnight either. And, you know, I'm sure at one point, all of us looked at, looked at a, a primitive website and said, gee, this is great. I've got a, you know, a, a research paper that I can read on my computer. What good is the internet for other than that? Well, it turns out it was good for a whole lot of things. And I think that daring to, to explore and innovate is really what's going to drive you know, the end results of AI, I think we're just at the early days here. And I don't think we've imagined everything that it's going to be over the next five to 10 years yet. Not even close. I do think that being able to see the current traction in use cases does help to open up that imagination though, Marshall. I'm sure you would agree, you know, a good set of use cases, knowing what different companies are doing, this gives us a better bounding box of where could this take us? We know what is realistic in terms of capability expansion. To your point here, you know, in terms of that that daring to innovate, obviously, you know, quite an important element here. You know, we have our our Kodaks that didn't get into digital. You know, we probably have oodles and oodles of retailers that didn't get on the web and they paid the price. Similarly, probably the people that really made the most of it weren't just daring to innovate with a big technology wave in all ways because they thought it was cool. They probably dared to innovate in a way that really was a worthwhile, deep investment in their core competencies. Are you seeing smarter companies that are moving ahead with this stuff think very deliberately about where to make these deeper AI improvements? Because it's pretty clear if if I'm a $20 billion manufacturing company, there are borderline Mm -hmm. unlimited number of places where I could spend money improving data infrastructure, hiring talent, uh, improving team collaboration, thinking about new predictive models, thinking about physical automation. You know, it's unlimited. What does it look like to take daring innovation, but also be deliberate and strategic about it? Yeah, it's it's really interesting. You know what what we're seeing, especially you know, especially in you know, forgive me for the, the term here, but for you know more, you know, stodgy or traditional enterprises like banking, right? I mean, let's face it, banking hasn't really changed all that much in two hundred years. No, right? it has not. No, it has not. Uh, you, know, you either have money or you need money, which is why you go to a bank. Is what one of my that's uh, it. close partners has said, and and but that's all going to change, right? And so you know, there's been a great focus on, you know, just how do we improve and expand the customer experience? How do we better and more more uniquely engage and differentiate the services that we provide to the end users is what these folks are thinking to the point that 
many of these companies who have the word bank in their name today believe that in the future they may, may drop bank from their, their official name because ah. banking services may only be one of many supporting services which they provide to their end users. And so they're in a true transformation. And, and you know, we have numerous examples of this, you know, from the internet days where, you know, companies completely transform from their core competency and installed base to something, you know, very different. You know, it, it was you know, quite a metamorphosis over time. Yeah. And, and it'll be interesting to see where those go. And again, I think for folks steering companies, it's a very deliberate choice in terms of where you where you want to start that big, big innovation engine, because there's a there's a lot of places you could start, but I think if you're smart, you, you pick the right areas. And you know, to your point, Marshall, many of the stodgier industries will struggle with that, but they should be deliberate about still getting it done. I can certainly agree there. Last point I'll touch yeah. on, because you know, you guys had a pretty substantial customer success story in Europe, one of your big banking, you know, we're talking about banking here. One of your, mm -hmm. your initial big sort of releases from a customer story standpoint was was in Europe, clearly doing a good deal of business in the United States, hiring a lot on both sides of the Atlantic here. Talk a little bit about what you're seeing from an adoption difference from Europe and the US, if there's a way to kind of put it in a nutshell in terms of what's what's maybe different. Yeah, I mean, you know, certainly are, there are some, some contrasts between North America and, and Europe and Asia Pacific as well, where we also operate. But, you know, from a, from a European standpoint, you know, the, the, the European countries and the EU in particular, you know, they're very advanced in terms of data privacy and data protection, you know, rules and regulations which have been put in place. I would argue that they are, you know, leading the world in that and, and really putting the impetus on vendors and suppliers to adhere to what's probably the future state for the world you know, given their leadership in that space. You know, another area where we see a lot of leadership coming out of Europe is around sustainability, right? And this is something that we all as inhabitants of this planet should care about deeply. And, you know, AI and, and large, large language models and, and, you know, the training of those certainly has its implications around sustainability in the environment, which we all you know, bear a responsibility for which is being enforced, you know, by a lot of European nations and countries. And then finally, you know, the other th thing that we see evolving very quickly in Europe, as, as well as in Asia and other small countries, is just the adoption of AI being coordinated at national scale versus just company or, or, or corporate scale. And that requires a whole different level of engagement and partnership with vendors to, you know, to do it right. And, you know, something that we've been very, very proud to be a part of and something that we see as a, a huge opportunity to really jumpstart AI fluency and AI native business and governing in these countries that take on those initiatives. Yeah, well, I think so this is a good sum up. And hopefully for our audience, this has been a nice way to be able to say what is unique about Europe? You know, what's happening over there that might be a little bit different? Certainly the countrywide AI adoption, very tough to pull off over here, Marshall. But, you know, if you're a Belgium or a Singapore or you name it, there might be a way to just improve infra altogether and improve policies in a way that sort of lift innovation with a national budget in a way that's more substantial. And that's kind of a cool, 
possibility to think about. My hope, Marshall, is that we get to talk about, as that starts to get more and more mature and you guys get more involved there, we get to talk about that public sector side of AI as well. Uh, but it, there is a shot. We'll see more of it in Europe than in the States. And I'm aware of where we are on time here, but I'm glad we were able to fit in everything and have you back in the program. It's It's been great to be able to chat again, Marshall. Dan, thanks so much. It's an honor and a pleasure as usual. And that's all for this episode of the AI and Business Podcast. Great to chat with Marshall as always. I've been on many an online event with Marshall, an in-person event with Marshall, and he's been on the show so many times it almost feels just like another day in the office. And certainly he's seen a lot over the last 18 months. And so it's great to be able to have him back on the show and share some ideas. Hopefully you learned a lot from today's episode. Again, this episode was sponsored by Sambanova. Sambanova believes that AI is here. And you can learn more about Sambanova themselves at sambanova.com slash AI dash is dash here, or just type into Google Sambanova AI is here and you can learn more about their initiative there and also learn from the, some of the best of insights from our podcast series. They've been doing a great job of translating these AIs here episodes into individual articles and infographics that they've been sharing on social. And again, you can find that by finding them. If you yourself are interested in reaching the global Emerge audience, whether through sponsored podcasts, articles, co-branded research, demand generation, and more, you can learn more about Emerge Media Services, that is to say, the work that we do with AI vendors at emerj.com slash ad1. That's emerj.com slash ad, as in advertise, and then the number one. So that's all for this episode. Thanks so much for tuning in. I look forward to catching you the next time here on the AI and Business Podcast.